Okay, fantastic. Nice to see you folks. Um, i trying to think last time I was here. Was it Slichos? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Um, maybe. Anyway, nice to see you all. This is a three-part series. Um, uh, as the rabbi mentioned, uh, here, Holliswood, and then here. Thank you very much for having me. It's really delightful. Um, okay, so I thought I would share with you some uh, new material that I've been working on. Uh, some of this is going to show up in an Aleph Beta video series soon, um, but uh, some of it won't. It's, this is a bit more of an expansive view than you'll get in that series. Uh, but I guess what I want to tackle with you today, um, if we can, is to try to learn through with you some sections of the Haggadah. This is a little bit different than what I normally do. Um, it's not entirely different than what I normally do, but it's the... Uh, instead of just to focus on biblical text, we're going to be focusing on biblical text, but also through the context of this rabbinic text of the Haggadah. And the Haggadah is, is as you know, I'm sure you're aware, is one of these documents which you sort of know it and you don't know it. Um, you know it because you almost know it by heart, you read it every year, right? Um, but you don't really know it because the real truth is the Haggadah is not an easy document to figure out, uh, to just understand. And I'm just talking like basic reading comprehension, uh, which is, by the way, something which we often ignore when it comes to the Haggadah, and we, uh, which is strange if you think about it, but we don't read it the way you'd read like a newspaper article or anything that you would actually try to sort of understand. Um, you know, because uh, think about it, how many of our satyrs sort of progress, right? Sort of your average satyr, right? So everyone's very hungry, but in the sort of, you know, uh, you're a little blitz from the whole Pesach cleaning ritual, but everyone's very excited, so you sit down, and assuming you start on time, um, you jump in, and in the beginning, you've got um, all this great stuff, so you've, and, and the kids really want to get into the act too, right? So then, so you'll have little Jimmy or little Yankel, right? So he's going to ask his question about Rebbe Azaria with the white beard, and like, was he really 18 or was he really 70? Did he look like 18? And what was the deal? And then um, little Hani is going to ask, how come the Ben Harasha sounds so much like the Ben Ahafam, right? And then we'll talk about that for a while, right? And definitely talk about that. And then someone will want to know their question on the Manishtana, why it's this question, why it's not that question, are there really questions, are there really statements. And we get all this great discussion, and then little Khani wants to put on a skit with her cousins, so you put on a little skit with her cousins, it's great. Bring out the frogs and the, you know, the, the, you know, the, 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 the props. Everyone's having a good time and asking questions, and things like that, and then someone looks at their watch, right? <laughs> this is how it always goes, right? And it's like, oh my gosh, you know, we're only up to mitzchila, you know, and, and, and it's like we've got to eat afikoman in like two hours, right? So like, what are we going to do? So at that point, the speed reading tournament begins, right? So it's like, you know, you, you begin um, 
just sort of, uh, you know, what we call the sort of the mumble mumble stop routine, right? Where you just sort of like you mumble, everyone kind of mumbles a few paragraphs themselves. You stop for a second, you sing a song, you know, got Vihishanda, okay, you know that, right? Mumble mumble stop, you know, and then there's a, another song or something, right? And then somebody wants a quick word, but quick because you really got to go, right? <laughs> And then, right, does it sound familiar to you? You know what I mean? This is kind of how it goes, right? It's not just me. It's a little group, little group therapy here, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and this continues. You finally get to Dayenu, you know, and you, and you rip through and finally... But here's the problem. Um, you sort of front-loaded all of the questions and all of the discussion at sort of the very beginning of the Seder. And the funny thing is, the very beginning of the Seder, as you'll see in just a minute, is really just preliminaries. All of that is really preliminaries. You don't even, get, like, think about when does Magid actually start? You know, do you ever ask yourself this question? It says Magid in the, in the Haggadah, but if you think carefully, it doesn't actually start, like, you know, it's Magid in terms of actually saying over the, the main mitzvah of the night, telling over the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Like, when does that actually start? Did you ever ask your question? Like, you go through the Haggadah, it's like, it's not in this paragraph, it's not in that paragraph, it's like, it's pretty far in. And, you know, you're already well into mumble, mumble, stop by the time you actually get into Magan. And this is a little bit of a tragedy, because spending all this time on all of this preliminary stuff, and you're actually not even focusing at all on what Ravi Kiva and Rabbi Elizabeth Nazar and all those guys were focusing on when they spent all night talking about Yitzhak Mitzrayim, right? So... Um, so that's like one problem. Another problem is that, again, when you read the Haggadah, we don't even really read it. Again, it's almost like reading comprehension goes out the window. Like, imagine, you know, what are the kinds of questions we ask about the Haggadah, right? You know, it's like, how come it said it this way instead of it should have said it that way? How could, you know, imagine you're reading... And, and it's like, actually, what is basic reading comprehension? Like, if you have to define what basic reading comprehension is, like, just, like, understanding what you're reading, I would say it's basically composed of two things, right? You have to be able to do two things to look yourself in the mirror and say, I have understood what I have read, right? One is, like, any given paragraph, you've got to be able to have some idea what that paragraph was talking about and be able to, like, name it. You know what I mean? Like, this is the best title of this paragraph. This is what this paragraph was. And then you have to have some idea about how this paragraph connects to the next paragraph. So then you have to do the same thing with the next paragraph. What is this paragraph about? And then you have to have some idea of the transition from paragraph A to paragraph B. Like how do those things go together? How does A lead to B? Is it but? Is it however? Is it because? Is it therefore? Is it moreover? Like what's the, what is the nature of the transition between the two? And it's not even like you always think this stuff out, right? Your mind does this subconsciously. If you're reading the newspaper, you're reading the New York Times, you're reading whatever you read, the New York Post, and I don't know what the politics over here is or, or the tabloidism, but if you're reading, you don't have to like go through this consciously. This is what your brain does. It's doing this automatically. But imagine like you're going through this really difficult New York Times article. Imagine somebody 
who had no idea what the article was talking about, like could not name what this paragraph is talking about, what that paragraph is talking about, and how they go together, said, oh, I have something I really want to share with you about this article, right? You see this paragraph over here in the third sentence? How come it says, like, because at the beginning of the sentence, and then later on at the end of the sentence, it also says because. It says because twice. I have a word to tell you, and why it says because twice in this sentence. You would look at him like he's crazy. It's like, you know, you... You have to first understand what you're talking about before you can darshan, you know, the particular words of, the, of this particular paragraph. But we often don't do that when it comes to time for the Haggadah. And it's, and it, you know, it's a bit of a shame. The Haggadah is, is, we should just say it out front, a difficult book to understand, which is strange because it's the most popular book. It's like the thing that everyone says. But it's difficult because... It, you know, some of it's written in Aramaic, but besides that, it's a Talmudic, Tanaic text, or, you know, uh, whether it, it was put together, you know, roughly around the same time as the Talmud and Mishnah, exactly when it was put together, we don't precisely know, but it's like imagine you had to learn three blot of Gemara at your Seder, and you had people there who had never really learned before, like, that's a daunting task, right? So the, the so... What I want to do with you today, in, and really for these next couple of weeks, is zero in, actually, on the Haggadah, and just ask some basic reading comprehension questions. And what's interesting is that when you start asking some basic questions about the Haggadah, just like really, really basic stuff, not the kind of stuff that you usually hear at your Seder, right? All of a sudden, there are these layers of meaning that start to fill in, and you begin to actually see, you know, you just peel off the onion, one layer of meaning, another layer of meaning, like there's actually stuff going on here that you otherwise wouldn't, wouldn't notice. Um, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to take a look at um, two things principally. We're going to basically be looking at the Haggadah and doing some reading comprehension work, but we're also going to be taking a look at some of the biblical texts that the Haggadah quotes, talking about why we quote that text and seeing the larger text that's being quoted and try to ask ourselves, how it is that the authors of the Haggadah were looking at the biblical text that they were, that they were analyzing here. Okay, so that is our game plan. That's what we're going to try to. Uh, that's what we're going to try to do. Um, and uh, let's see how it goes. Okay, so I'm going to jump in. We're going to start from say Magid, right? Beginning of Magid, the real preliminaries are done. Kadesh, Urchatz, right? You've done all that. Drunk your first cup of wine. You had your Little bit of little bit of potato, and uh, you are ready to go now. You've had your appetizer, right? Okay. So again, just sort of like basic reading comprehension. What's what's basically happening? So we start Magid interestingly with Halach Ma'anil. Um, Halach Ma'anil is an Aramaic text, as you know. Um, it is a little strange, actually, why you would start Magid of all things from Halach Ma'anil. If you think about what Halach Ma'anil means. Right? What does halachmania mean? This is the poor man's bread, right? That we, our forefathers used to eat in Egypt. The reason why, of course, it's a little strange to start Magid there, or to start really the Haggadah there, is like if you'd have to define what kind of day the Haggadah is, right? So you would say it's a celebration of freedom. So it's a little strange to start by not talking about that, right? We're actually not talking about 
freedom, we're talking about slavery. So you say, well, okay, that sort of makes sense because before you want to talk about the good stuff, you want to talk about the bad stuff. And start with the bad stuff, then get to the good stuff. But the strange thing is if you just follow the trajectory of the actual verses of the, the sentences of Halachmania, it looks like something more is going on here. Right? Notice it's not just like, because Halachmania doesn't go like this. This is the poor man's bread that our forefathers used to eat in Egypt. Now, if you really think that we're Maschal Begnus and Musayim Bishvat, that's what's really happening here. We're starting with the bad stuff. If you were running the Haggadah, what would you say next after you said, this is the poor man's bread that we used to eat when we were in Egypt, right? So you're, you're starting with the bad stuff. So what are you going to do? Here's my wonder bread. Then you would say, you would say and, and of course, but now we have challah, right? But we don't, right? So can't, don't have that to show. So, but you would say, all right, that's a good way to kick off Magid. So what am I doing? I'm kicking off, I'm starting, right? Because we can play this little game. When does Magid start, right? When does Sipur Yitzhiyas, when does the, the story actually begin? So you could imagine somebody raising their hand saying, right here, this is it. Like we're, we're starting with a, like a visual aid. It's very dramatic. We're pointing to the, to the matz on the table and we're saying, this, this is what we used to eat. And now we've got everybody's attention. What would you do next? If you're really starting Magid, you tell the story. You see, sometimes, or you at least tell the story of Sheba Mitzrayim, and it was awful, right? The problem is that's like 40 pages later in the Haggadah, right? That's not this, right? So, like, something else is going on here. It doesn't because we don't tell the story now. We don't dive into the story. What do we do instead? Here's what we say. Here is the poor man's bread that our forefathers ate when we were in the land of Egypt. Um, and again, most of you would have said, that's what we used to eat, but Baruch Hashem, we're free, so now we can have something else, or now we can have challah, but we don't say that. Instead, we say, Anybody who's in trouble, right? Anybody who's needy, let them come and eat with us. Um, and let them celebrate Pesach with us. But think about what you just said. You just began by showing everybody matzah. Now, if this is a holiday of redemption, and a holiday that we should celebrate freedom, and you began by showing us the opposite, presumably to show us how far we've come, like that was the olden days, right? But that's not what you're doing. You're like picking up this matzah, and you're saying... Here's this really poor man's bread. Everybody, let, why don't you come and eat this poor man's bread with us? Because we're going to be eating this poor man's bread. It's like, well, one second, hold on. But what do you? I thought you were free. So it's like, why are you eating the poor man's bread now? Like, maybe you should introduce matzah differently. Maybe you should say matzah. That was we in the carbon pesach when we were about to come out of Egypt, right? And and it symbolizes this moment because we're celebrating, we're free, but we are actually talking about us eating this. And the identity of matzah, because remember, matzah does have a dual identity. Matzah also is the thing that we ate, that last thing we ate in carbon Pesach as we were going free, but we're not focusing on that. We're focusing on this poor man's bread, and now join us to eat the poor man's bread. And if you didn't, as if you didn't get the idea that much, look at the very next words. Hashata avdi, l'shana hava well, that's a downer way to start the, the, uh, the, the Haggadah, right? A, a day in which we're supposed to be celebrating. What are you saying? You're kind of saying we're not really celebrating. Like, now we're slaves. So, so one second. So are you celebrating or aren't you celebrating? Like, what do you, what do you mean? 
So there's this whole picture of that this is the poor man's bread, and it's almost like we haven't moved on from that. We're still eating the poor man's bread. We're still slaves. If you want to join us when we eat the poor man's bread, join us. It, it, just, it, it just seems like a funny way to start. Am I crazy? It just seems like a strange way to start a, a feast of, of redemption. Anyway, that's halachmania. But basic idea, we are, uh, you know, main title for the paragraph, introducing the Seder, visual aid, we got the matzah, we're showing what it's about, but strangely for some reason, we're emphasizing how bad it is, and maybe how bad it still is, which we'll have to come back and figure out, okay? All right, let's continue. Then we got some questions, right? Manishtana, basic idea of these questions. Somebody, presumably a child, is asking us uh, what's going on, and this again follows the main idea in the Gemara that, uh, you know, no better way to tell a story than ask some questions first. And basically someone's looking around and saying, look how strange this night is. Um, look how strange this night is. And, right, and we're doing all of and we're, and we're eating all of this. Manishnah, by the way, often you might realize is not necessarily a question, right? It also, it could be a declaration of astonishment. Right, manishtana halayla. There's an exclamation mark more than a question mark. Like, how uh, how different this night is than all other nights. And it's a kid looking around and seeing that it's and seeing that it is um, that it's a different kind of night uh, than all of the other nights. If you put this together with halach ma'anya, by the way, and ask, okay, so how did halach ma'anya transition into manishtana? Because those seem to be two very different things. Right? Here's our matzah. Right? So on a simple level, you might just say, well, having looked at the matzah, matzah is like an unusual thing, don't usually eat matzah, so it's the kind of thing that somebody would ask about. So here's a bunch of whole, whole bunch of other questions that people would ask about. Um, that's one way to see it. Another way to see it is if you pick up on this theme, which we've just begun to develop, this notion that you started the Haggadah with the sense that we're still slaves, Right? It's almost like that, it seems to me, like it adds almost a new complexion into the questions of Manishtana. Because imagine not just a kid asking Manishtana, but imagine an adult asking Manishtana, an adult who's just read Halach Ma'anya asking Manishtana, right? What are the questions now? What's the difference between being a slave and being free? Or you just said, Yeah, it's like, here I'm eating poor man's bread, and I feel like a slave, and all of a sudden I'm doing all this other stuff. I'm, I've got these four cups of wine, i got all this stuff around, I've got this feast that I'm celebrating, and it's really, you know, it's kind of strange, right? And certainly for the person who sees himself as Mr. Poor Man eating poor man's bread, it's almost like there's a part of him that is astonished at the celebration that he's going through in some kind of way. Anyway, let's continue. We've then got Avaram Hayinu, Lepara Mitzrayim, Vayotzin Hashem Misham Biyad Chazaka Vesera Nutuya, Nutuya Bi'ilu Loa Tzir Kadosh Baruch Chazaka Vesera Mitzrayim, Rayanu Baneinu 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 Mishubaram Hayinu Lepara Mitzrayim. Right? Best title for this paragraph, what are we doing here? That sounds like where his Magid starts. Sounds like where Magid starts. You could make a case the Magid begins right here, right? Um, 
You could make a case that Maggid begins right here. What are we basically doing? We're giving an answer to the questions. The answer to the questions is, we used to be slaves in Egypt, that's why we're doing all this stuff, and God took us out there with an outstretched arm. Now, how does that one idea there, how does that um, fit, or how does that lead into, say, the end of the paragraph? How do we get to even if we're all very smart, even if we're all very wise, no matter how much you know, there's a mitzvah to tell about the story of Yitzhiya Mitzrayim, the whole hamar belasapar b'yitzhiya Mitzrayim has hareza meshubach. And if you tell a lot about it, hareza meshubach. How do those ideas go together? How did we get from the beginning of the paragraph to the end of the paragraph? How do those things connect? Right? Basic reading comprehension. What do you say? Right? Beginning of the paragraph, we used to be slaves. Because, by the way, if this is the beginning of Magid, that's not what I would do. If this is the beginning of Magid, I would say, avonam hainu lepar b'yitzrayim, and it was really, really bad. And they, they made us work, and they threw our kids in the Nile. And then, you know, and then I, I, and then I, I have a few paragraphs on, and then I'd, you know, I'd be ready for the meal, right? But that's not what we're, we're doing. What, what are we doing here? But it's a little bit like a prelim, if you know what I mean. We're only saying, and now I'm going to tell you a story. Before I tell you a story, I just want to tell you how glorious this story is. It's an amazing story. We could spend hours and days and nights telling the story. But here we have this little script where they go through to tell you the story. Okay, so the interesting thing is, if you would actually think about Magid, you can imagine that if your Seder ended here, after Avanam Hainu Leparba Mitzrayim, you can make a case that you could go directly to the meal. You could, you can make that case. I just told you the answer to your questions. We used to be slaves, we're free, let's eat, like the old joke goes. But it's actually right here. You could actually say that you've done it all, right? Which really is where the Baal Haggadah is coming from, just in basic reading comprehension, in telling you the end of the paragraph. Because now that I've told you the story in a nutshell, I have to explain to you why telling you the story in a nutshell is not the be-all and end-all and why I have to keep on talking. Why is there any more to the Seder, right? The reason why there's more to the Seder is the rest of the paragraph. Why is there more to the Seder? Because the reason why there's more to the Seder is because no matter how much you know, you have to really, really get into talking about the Agata. It's not enough to just have the nutshell. Now, why isn't it enough? Bala Agata tells you. There's a sentence there in the middle between the beginning of the paragraph and the end of the paragraph that tells you why it's not enough. Because you could challenge you and say, why? So it's enough. I said it. Why? Why do I need to go Dayenu? Right? Why do I have to get into it more? Why do even wise men need to continue telling? So the Haggadah tells you why. Why? Because Were it not for God having taken us out, we would still be slaves to Pharaoh. How does that provide the rationale for why a little snippet isn't enough and you really have to delve into it? What do you say? Just basic basic idea. Right? What? You would just say that, that no matter where you are in life, 
right? No matter where you are in time or in history, the story which we're about to tell and we have told is deeply relevant to you, has affected your whole life. Your whole life is dramatically different because Yitzhak Mitzrayim once happened. And if that's the case, it can't be something that you just say in a sentence. So that which I've told you in a sentence is because, like Winston Churchill, who was that the motivational speaker always says in public speaking, first you tell them what you're going to say. You know this? First you, right, you need an introduction. First you say what you're going to say, then you say it, then you tell them what you said, right? That's how a speech goes. Here too in the Haggadah, first you tell them what you're going to say, that's Havana Magin in the Parham Mitzrayim, and then you say it. But why do I still have to say it if I told you what you're going to say? The answer is, that little piece isn't enough, it's deeply relevant, and therefore, no matter how much you know, you really have to dive in. Okay. So, what happens next? You would think the next thing we should do is, if you just told me how I have to dive in, what should we do now? I should dive in. I should go straight, open up a schmos. I should start diving, right? I should start actually getting into the core of Magadik. So we can always, we can play this little game, the little game of the kid in the back seat of the car. Mommy, are we there yet, right? right? Are we actually at the beginning of Magad yet? And so far the answer is sort of no, right? I'm telling you why I need to talk about Magad so much, right? So... Are we there yet? It turns out that the next thing we do is not the beginning of Magad. It's still preliminary. What do we say? We have our Maisar Rolozer Ben Azar, right? That they're, these guys are in Bnei Brak, and they were telling about Yitzhak Mitzrayim all night long until in the morning they just lost track of time. What are we doing? We're illustrating the idea we just had. The idea is no matter how smart you are, Right? You've got to have some, you, you have to keep on talking about it. Here are these guys, they're really smart, they knew the whole Torah, that's exactly what they were doing. We then get into a bit of a tangent. What is this paragraph doing here? Right? You have here a drash, you have Eliza ben Azaria who's telling you that for all of his life, Right? He didn't quite understand that you had to talk about Yitzhak Mitzrayim at night, which is a little strange if you think about it, because isn't that what you're doing every Seder night? Like you're talking about Yitzhak Mitzrayim, you're talking about it at night. So how come there's this guy who's a really big Talmud Chacham, he's 70 years old, and he still doesn't realize that you should be talking about Yitzhak Mitzrayim at night until Ben Zoma, Darshan de Pasuk, Laman Tiskoros, Yom Tzeschem, Eretz Mitzrayim, Kol Yimei Chayacha, Yimei Chayacha is only the days, Kol Yimei Chayacha is at night, Hacham said no, it's Lavi Yimei Mashiach, what's going on? So basically the background over here is we are no longer talking actually about the main mitzvah of the night. The main mitzvah of the night is Sipur Yitzhak Mitzrayim, is actually telling the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Turns out there is another mitzvah. Another mitzvah that is easily confused with Sipur Yitzhak Mitzrayim, but is not Sipur Yitzhak Mitzrayim, which is Zechiras Yitzhak Mitzrayim, which is a separate mitzvah, which is on a daily basis, not on an annual basis, but on a daily basis to at least mention Yitzhak Mitzrayim. That second mitzvah, which is not the main mitzvah of Sipur Yitzhak Mitzrayim, Sipur Yitzhak Mitzrayim is an annual mitzvah to really get into the day, that mitzvah of just mentioning it happens to be a mitzvah that fundamentally is in the day, as opposed to the mitzvah of Sipur Yitzhak Mitzrayim, which is fundamentally a night. So along comes Ben Zoma and says, you know what? It's a night too, that other mitzvah. Strange why we would feel a need to get into this, right? Because 
it's not really about the mitzvah of the day. The mitzvah of the day is Sipriyasiyas Mitzrayim. Why are we talking about another mitzvah? Good question, but that, and maybe we'll get back to that, but that's, that's what's happening here, right? We're just sort of following the little Rube Goldberg chart here, right? Okay. What happens next? What happens next is we get into the four sons or the four kids. Chacham, Rasha, Eniyad, Elishol, right? How does this fit? What are we doing here? If you would have to give a best title to the paragraph of the four sons and ask yourself, how does it connect with what has happened before, right? What would you say? Right, because it seems like all of a sudden we're talking about four sons. Like, why are we talking about four sons? Like, what does that have to do with anything? Why are we, why are we talking about four sons? Yeah, what do you say? It's the guide how to accomplish what you just asked them to do. A guide the leader to say that you give them an idea how to be Mekayim or approach Okay, the basic idea of the four sons is that back to the mitzvah of Sipur Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, the main mitzvah of the night, it turns out that that mitzvah, Vigadat has actually repeated four different times in Chumash. Out of that, Chazal Darshan, why were there four different declarations that you should tell over to your kid that which happened in Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, must be there are four qualitatively different ways to do it. And that's where they come up with this notion that there are different kinds of kids, and that you speak to different kinds of kids differently, and that's why the Torah is telling you four times to talk about, about Yitzhiyat Mitzrayim. So how does this connect with the ideas before? Until now, we were talking about how much you have to talk about Yitzhiyat Mitzrayim, which is how quantitatively large this mitzvah is, that you always tell it over, no matter how much you know, and you keep on talking at, right, until, until the morning time, and it's a mitzvah that's all night long, now we're moving away from how much the mitzvah is quantitatively to how much the mitzvah is qualitatively, which is to say there are four qualitatively different ways that you can do this and should do this depending on who you're talking to. Okay, so we've got our four sons. All right, then we've got Yachal Mirosh Chodesh. You might think we should tell the story of Yitzhiyat Mitzrayim on Rosh Chodesh. And then we have a drasha, no, you don't do it on Rosh Chodesh, you do it on that day, what time of day, you do it when there's matzah and mara in front of you, what's going on? What, this just drop out and out of the blue, what, what's the title of this paragraph and what is it doing here and how did it get here? Anyone want to take a stab at that? Okay, good. So now we're up to when. We've done how much and we've done the different ways, the qualitative different ways of doing it, and now we're up to when. When is this mitzvah? That's a strange thing that you would think this mitzvah starts in Rosh Chodesh. Why would you think the mitzvah starts in Rosh Chodesh? Turns out that one of those four times that the Torah mentioned that you should teach your kids, right? One of those four times, the Yigadat HaLabincha is in the parsha of HaChodesh HaZelachem. It actually begins with HaChodesh HaZelachem, and it's actually in Parshat Bo, and it's that moment when God comes to Moshe, and seemingly he comes to Moshe on Rosh Chodesh Nisan, and says, here is this day, here's this month, this is the month for you, and pretty soon, here's what's going to happen. And so it sounds like, maybe if you think, that maybe, you know, that maybe it was chronological, maybe it was back then, and then we darshan from the language of the Yigadat HaLabincha Bayom Ahu, that no, it's on the day that you actually go out, 
the day that you can say, it's as if the person is pointing to something where he can actually point to visual aids and say, no, it's because of these things, this matzah and mara that I was able to go out. So we know exactly when it is that we're doing this. Now, remember, have we done magid at all yet? No. All of this is preliminary. All of this is just how much, right? When? And all these different types of ways of doing it. We haven't really gotten. So if we're speaking to our little toddler in the back seat, we're telling them, no, no, just hang on. We are going to get there. But an interesting question is we're still going to want to ask ourselves, like, when do we actually begin magid? Like, when is that moment when we're actually beginning to tell the story? Okay. So, what happens next? Mitzchila Right? Do we have any candidates for maybe this is Magid? Maybe this is Magid. Maybe we're beginning. It sounds like a story. In the beginning, oh, that's a good way to start a beginning, a story. Once upon a time. Once upon a time, Mitzchila, in the very beginning, this is the way things were. So we're going back all the way to the very beginning. Mitzchila in the beginning, we were idol worshippers, and now God has brought us to his service. An interesting question I would ask you is what the word va'achshav means in that sentence. In the beginning, we were we were idol worshippers, and now God has brought us to his service. Whens and now. What would you say now is? What? Does now mean in 2017? What does now mean? Okay, so you might say now might be the moment of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Could be. Now could mean now when you're reading this. That's another possibility. Right? Another possibility is that now is much before all of that. Now is not 2017, not even during the Pesach Seder, but now is actually during the times of Avram. That's actually what it sounds like if you read the verse, because we're about to bring a proof text. And the proof text is strange, because the proof text is going to prove that originally our forefathers were idolaters, but it doesn't seem to prove the second half of the sentence, which is, but now God has taken us into our service, unless you're right about the meaning of the verse. Let's read this strange verse that seemingly proves the idea. Originally we were of the Abadazara, and now God has brought us into his service, as it says, and Joshua said to all the people, this is a quote from Joshua 24, very interesting paragraph that we're going to look at in a minute. This is what it says in Joshua 24. Joshua assembles all the people of Israel and gives them the following speech. He says, Thus says God, Across the river your forefathers once dwelled. Across the river would be in the land of Ur. Terach avi Avram vavi Nachor. Terach, father of Abraham, father of Nachor. Vayavdu elohim achirim. And they served other gods. Notice the word me'olam there. Me'olam seems to suggest that it wasn't just that family that served other gods at that moment in time. It's all the way stretching back into the mists of time immemorial. From earliest times, they were, they were of the Avodah 
And that continued and continued and continued. And I took your forefather, Abraham, from the other side of the river, and I brought him through all of the land of Canaan, and I made his progeny great, and I gave him Yitzchak, and I gave Yitzchak Yaakov, and I gave him Esav, and I gave Harseir, and I gave Esav Harseir, as his inheritance, and Yaakov and his children went down to Egypt. Okay, this is where the Haggadah starts getting hard. Right until now was the easy stuff, all the preliminaries. This is the hard stuff, okay? What in blazes is going on here? Why are we quoting this verse from Joshua? What is it trying to tell us? Now, if you're going to tell me this is the beginning of Magid, right? So, I mean, let, let me just ask you, what questions would you have about this verse? Let me just throw this out to you. Does this make perfect sense to you? What's problematic here? It doesn't even mention Egypt or the slavery. So it does. Yaakov and right? And Yaakov and his children went down to Egypt. So you might just say, okay, so we're like telling the pre-story. We're like, get, we're talking about how we got down to Egypt. I get that. So now you'd expect what should happen next. Like, we're up to the good part now, right? We're, we're finally up to Magid. We're up to the part where they got down to Egypt. So now, finally, let's talk about what it was like in Egypt. And it was terrible in Egypt. It was terrible. Right? Look at the next paragraph. Baruch Shomer Haftachto. Baruch Hu. Nothing about Egypt. You, you were just leading me up. You, you led me to Egypt. And then you, you're completely taking me somewhere else. So, like... What was that all about? What, what were you even doing there if that was a false start? If now we're going to go talk about other things. Like, what, why are you quoting from this? Now, but let's even say that we're trying to begin with Magid. Is this the sentence? Is this, are these the three sentences you would choose to harp on in, in the Haggadah? Let's just read these sentences. What is strange in the sentences we just read? Let's read it again. First of all, the problem is, supposedly, this is a proof text for the idea that originally we're Avodah Zarah, but now God has brought us to his service. Do you see what I mean? Like, I get the originally we're Avodah Zarah part. That's what Joshua says. He says, our forefathers were always worshiping Avodah Zarah. But where's the Ve'achshav Kervanah Machim Avodah You just ended with, we went down to Egypt. Like, that's anticlimactic. How did you... What, do you is that... What, what does Va'achshav mean? Did Joshua mean Achshav now in his own day? Is that what he meant? In his day that God brought us? Like, what, what, did, right, what, what did it mean? And how are we... And, and what is this sentence even doing here? Um, the interesting possibility is, as you raise in the back of the room, what's your name? Stu. Stu. So as Stu says, an interesting possibility is that actually means in the days of Abraham. And therefore, if that's true, what verb suggests in this verse that now God has brought us into his service? Look at it again. El, 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 
Thus says the God of Israel, First, in the olden days, your forefathers were idolaters. And they were worshipping other gods. There it is. That word right there would have to be. The Ekach et Avichem, and I took your forefathers. That's God taking Abraham and saying, No, you're special, you're for me. Right? That would be the Va'achshav, according to Stu. Right? Maybe that's what's going on. But the verse is still strange. Here's why. Okay, here's the Haggadah. Here we are, we're reading the Haggadah. It's, it's Passover night, and we're reading about how everyone was idolaters, and then God took Avram. And then, for some reason I have to hear about how he traveled through Canaan all the time. Why is that relevant to the Seder? Like, is that important for our story? Or, like, no, is, is all this stuff important? Or we just, is it just Joshua's way of, like the only thing that we as a Seder should, on the Seder should be thinking about is the end of the sentence that we got down to Egypt? Or should we be paying attention to this stuff? Like, does this stuff matter? That Avram was walking around all Eretz Canaan, is that important? And then let's keep on reading. Va'arbe et Zaro, and I gave him lots of kids. Is that important? And then that's kind of strange because I gave him lots of kids because look at the next, next words. Va'etem lo et Yitzchak. And I gave him Yitzchak. And then you say to yourself, okay, so... That's one. Right? Okay, that's like a lot of kids? Like, you know... The, in, I don't know. It doesn't seem like a lot of kids. You know what I mean? And it's like, okay, the etan liyitzchak at Yaakov at Esav. That's three, right? Okay. And like, why is Esav in there? It's like, is this his night? And by the way, just to like really dig it in, the etan liyitzchak at Harseir lareshadoto. Oh, that's very interesting. It's his holiday. Like, why are we hearing about that? That Esav got Harseir. That's his inheritance. Why is this even here? why are we telling this? This is just full of digressions and why do we need to know any of this for Pesach? It just doesn't seem to fit. So anyway, to give Esav Harseir Lareshatoto and then finally you would think, well, if you gave Esav Harseir Lareshatoto so then the next thing you should say is then you gave Yaakov Eretz Yisrael, but we don't. Yaakov Banan Yard of like it doesn't seem to fit. You, you gave Esav that and you gave us this, like what is that about? Strange. Now, just to show you how strange it is, we can play a little game. We can actually begin to open up Joshua 24 and play a little game. If you were the author of the Haggadah and you were allowed to select any three verses from Joshua 24 for inclusion into the Haggadah, which verses would you choose? So let's like open up Joshua 24 for a second. Let's see if we can find it on our little iPad. So we've got here, and we have Yeshua, Yeshua 24, very end of Yeshua. So here we go. So let's just read, by the way, so we just see these verses in context. What's so funny? Sima, what's so funny? Here. Okay. Uh, you with me? Okay, by Yosef, Yeshua, Kol Shifte Yisrael. So Yeshua, this is just so we understand the end of his life, farewell, valedictory address, gathers everybody to Shechem, of all places. Vayikra Yisrael, and he calls the elders of Israel, 
And Vayyatsu Lufanel came to stand before God and Jesus says, Vayyomri Yoshua Kolam, Koamar Shamoki Sopevran or Yashua Vatechan. This is Joshua. In the olden days, you guys were all idolaters. Terra Haviavram Vavina Havayavdu Ali Makarim. All that's in the Gada. Eka Hatavi Hamit Avram Mevran are we to have that. Ole Hotabukhlur is Kanan. Arbed Zaro, Etan Lod Yitzchak, Etan Yitzchak, Yaakov at Esav, Etan Lod Esav at Harseir, Loreshetov, the Yaakov on Yerdim Mitzrayim. So this is candidate one, the verses that we actually have in the Haggadah. But let's keep reading. What's the very next verse? Ve'eshlach at Moshe, and I sent Moshe, vet Aaron, ve'egof at Mitzrayim, and I plagued Egypt, kasher asiti b'kirbo, ve'achar hotsiti etchem, and after all those plagues, I took you out. And I took all of your forefathers out from Egypt. And they came to the ocean. And Mitzrayim ran after us. It was very dramatic. They had chariots. They had horsemen. They had archers. It looked like the end. But you guys, you cried out to Hashem. And God put this fog and this cloud between you and them to protect you. But then he caused the sea to converge upon them. And you, through your own eyes, you saw what I did to Egypt. And then you stayed in the desert for many years. And then I brought you through the desert. I brought you through wars in the desert. And you... And you conquered those people. And then Balak came and he tried to defeat you. But God defeated Balak. And then you came in to Yericho and you came into the land. Guys, this is the good stuff. Hello? Put this in the Haggadah. And it's not like, so you can say, no, Balak didn't know about this. He's quoting from this chapter. Do you understand? It's like, why are you taking the three most irrelevant verses from Joshua when the good stuff starts right after that? You could just jump right into Maggie. What is this doing here? Yeah. It's also very interesting that all the verbs are the ethach, the oleh, the etain. This is all God being active. And then when it comes to Yaakov, it says, the Yaakov is one of the arguments, right? Ah, very interesting. So similar, we have a very interesting point about verbs, which we will get back to, right? We can play a little game with Yahushua. And the little game is who is responsible for what? Okay? And if you follow the verb train, you can see who is responsible for what. And whenever stuff happens in history, the very interesting question you can always theologically ask is who is more responsible for that event? People or God? Now, when you get a biblical characterization of history, that's really great because you don't have to guess anymore. The Bible is telling you what it thinks about who was most responsible for these events, people or God. And what's happening, actually, is that there are, a number of, of, there are a number of verbs here. And if you pay attention to the verbs, the verbs are telling a story about who is doing what. Right? So, for example, interestingly enough, and it's not always what you would think, because what you learn in Cheder, what you learn in school, is, okay, fine. So, I mean, let's look at it, right? So, everyone was idolaters, right? Who's responsible for that? Does it say God was responsible for that? No. no. People are presumably responsible for that. The people were worshipping, they, they were idolaters, right? Terach Avram Avinachar Vayavdu Ali Mecharim. Vayavdu. Who was responsible for them worshipping these other gods? They were. They were serving these other gods. Vayekach et Avichem. Who is responsible for taking Avram, if Stu is right, into his service? 
according to the verse? God, which is not what you learn in Cheder. Do you understand? Like, that doesn't seem to be what Yoshi was saying. In other words, normally when we think, okay, so how come Avram was chosen? Right? So he discovered God. He's the first monotheist. He was big Baal Chesed. So all that stuff might be true, but in the eyes of Sefer Yoshua, in the eyes of Joshua, that doesn't explain what makes Avram chosen. Ultimately, what makes Avram's chosen is not so much a choice that Avram makes, but a choice that God makes, right? So in response to Paul Johnson or whatever it was, the historian who said, why did God choose Abraham? Because Abraham chose God. It's like Yeshua is like, well, not so much. It's like, yeah, it's true Abraham chose God, but that's not like why did God choose it. It was an act of will on the part of God that God said, no, I'm choosing you, va'ekachetavichem. I am responsible for that. And by the way, the Baal Haggadah, it's not just Joshua saying that. Listen now to the Baal Haggadah, according to Stu, right? The Baal Haggadah is saying, going back to our Haggadah, Mitzchila Odeavadah, right? What's the prelude of the Haggadah of this? Mitzchila Odeavadah, originally we were idolaters, but Achshav Kervanu Hamakam Lavadaso. Who's responsible for us serving God? God is. God sort of brought us into his service, interestingly. Okay. Um, anyway, Simon would like us to follow the verbs. We will come back to that. The verbs tell a very interesting story. As you keep on reading these verbs, ask yourself who is responsible for what. And it's interesting that when it comes to time to going down to Egypt, right, that's a very interesting question. Who is responsible for what? Which leads me, by the way, into the very next paragraph of the Agata. We'll come back and play that game a little bit more with Joshua 24, but let's go back to the Agata meanwhile. Next paragraph in the Agata. Baruch Shomer Yisrael Baruch Blessed is God who keeps his promises. Because God, he figured out an end to all of this. Kamash Namar Lavram, as he told Avram in the Brit Ben Abtarim. As it says, God once told Avram in chapter 15, you should surely know that your children will be sojourners in a land not their own, Vavadum. They'll be enslaved there, and they'll be oppressed there for 400 years. And also that, that nation that they serve, I will judge. And afterwards, they'll go out with great wealth. Okay, let's stop right there for a moment. Let's just play our little reading comprehension game. Okay, what is happening in this paragraph? And... What does it have to do with previous paragraphs? Let's just start with what's happening in this paragraph. What are we talking about in this paragraph? We're talking about a certain covenant that happens in chapter 15 in Genesis known as the Brit Ben Abtar. It is the first moment that anyone in Jewish history ever hears about the looming possibility of Egyptian servitude. Right? Okay. What is this doing here? Again, it's strange because you just had this, right? We were just up to the part where Yaakov went to the time, but we should now start telling the story of what happened in Egypt. But now, no, no, we're back much earlier. We're back to Avram now. Like, what happened? Why are we back to Avram? But I have another question, a more basic question. If you were writing the Haggadah, what? Why 
that he would put us in. Like, what about that? What is going on here? Doesn't that also mess up your verb game? Because if you're saying the Yahoo Bana Yerdu Mitzrayim, so then the verse back in the Torah would bring the onus back on the Kaddish Baruch Hu for how we wound up there to begin with. Okay, so that's a very good point. So let's play the verb game. If we play the verb game in Yitzit Mitzrayim, if we play the verb game in Brik Ben Abtarim, right, where does that get us? Actually, what's your name? Alma. Alma? Okay, Alma, we're going to play the verb game in just one second. We're going to come back to Alma's verb game. But give me just like 30 seconds before we do the verb game to just show you the next paragraph. Then we'll come back and do that, okay? Let's do the next paragraph. The, ah, we have a song now. The he shamda, the he shamda, the he shamda. Right, very nice. Everyone sings the song. Everyone raise their glasses, right? Like pirate song. The he shamda, right? Spill the wine. It's really great. Okay. But now let me just ask, like, reading comprehension. What did that mean? Okay. So let's read it. The he shamda love Volanu, and it has always stood for us, for us and for our fathers. Shalohachad belvad ahmad alenu lechalosenu. Because it wasn't just one person who wanted to destroy us. But they always try to destroy us. And God always saves us. Okay, it's a little reading comprehension question. So what is this paragraph about? It's about how we always get saved from the bad guys. Okay, what's it doing here? What is this doing here? What is this doing here? How come we are saying this now? And it gets to the question, what does he mean? What does that little dangling program, pronoun mean? he shamda, and it has always stood for us. And what has always stood for us? The answer is, the last thing that we were talking about has always stood for us, right? And that is the key to everything. We'll get back to that again in just one second. But let me just show you the next paragraph, one final paragraph. Look and see. Paro is a bad guy, but he was nothing compared to Lavan. Lavan was a super bad guy. Paro, he only wanted to kill the, the boys. Lavan, he wanted to kill everybody. As it says, Arami As it says, and then we get to, as it says, what's our proof text that Lavan was really bad? Our proof text just happens to be from Sefer Dvarim in the text of the declaration that the farmer makes when he brings his Bikurim to the temple. Now, what's going to happen from here on in is once you get to Aram Yovadavi, this text, now the Agada is going to start making sense. Because everything that's going to happen in the rest of Magid is actually going to be the story. As a matter of fact, you can make a case that this is where Magid begins. Right over here was where Magid actually begins with the story of Arami Yovadavi. Because what we're going to do now is we're going to take the six verses or so of that farmer's declaration in Parshat Bikurim, and the rabbis are going to go through them systematically and are going to expound each one of them. But those six verses are a nice, pithy encapsulation of our history, starting from Lavan or before Lavan, coming down to Egypt, 
the servitude in Egypt and how God took us out from there and brought us into the land until the moment that you have this farmer with his basket of first fruits who has to recognize all of that. And we use the farmer's declaration as a way of conveying thanks to God. So now the question is, what was Selmad doing here? Selmad, right, this last little paragraph, brought us into the words Arami Obadavi, brought us into this declaration in Dvarim. Are you with me? So the question is, like, what was that there? Was it just like this convoluted Rube Goldberg thing that, let's talk about loving a little bit so that I can start talking about Arami Obadavi, but really that was just an excuse? Or... Or what? What was Selmad doing here? Okay, what I want to do with you now is actually go back over these next two weeks, is go back and put the Haggadah back together, which is to take all the questions we sort of asked, really starting from Mitzchila, and I want to argue that all these paragraphs work together beautifully, right? But there is a story that they tell, and there's an argument that the rabbis are making a very, very powerful argument that they're making. They're making an argument that is astonishing. It's an argument that if you or I made it, if your Uncle Bob made it around the, right, said this as a chiddush around the table, what the Baal Haggad is actually saying, you would say, Uncle Bob, that's a very nice thing. Uncle Bob had had too many things to drink, too, right? He's already up to his third cup of wine, and you would gently dismiss Uncle Bob. But it's not Uncle Bob who's making this argument. It's actually the author of the Haggadah who's making the argument. I just want to end tonight by focusing on what astonishing argument the Baal Haggadah is actually making that really is the, the core of this whole section of text. And we'll come back next week and I'll try to show you what the, where the Haggadah was coming from with its Uncle Bob statement. Go back to the Hisha Amda. What is the implication of this argument of Vihisha Amda. What is the Baal Haggadah telling you when it says Vihisha Amda? It's telling you something about the Brit Ben Abtar. Remember, that's what the he means. The he. And it has always stood for us. What has always stood for us? The promise of the Brit Ben Abtar has always stood for us. I want you to understand just how revolutionary an argument the Baal Haggadah is making. Baal Haggadah wants you to believe what about the Brit Ben Abtar? That's what When? Now. Always. Do you understand how revolutionary that argument is? No one, when they read the Brit Ben Abtarim, would have said that. What do the words of the Brit Ben Abtarim actually say? Let's just go back to the words that we just had them right over here. Here was the promise. Ger Yezarach, Beres Lolahem. Your children will be progeny in a land, will, will be strangers in a land not their own. They will be oppressed there for 400 years. Right? And then, But I will be there to judge that nation. And afterwards they will come out with great wealth. Now, you're a reader of the Bible. What was that prophecy referring to? When would it be that Abraham's progeny would be strange in his land, not their own. That they would be enslaved. That they would be oppressed for 400 years. And God would miraculously come and take them out. Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim. We all know that as Mitzrayim, right? That's what it's referring to. 
right? In hindsight, we know that that's, that's what it's referring to. So now, that's how any reader of Genesis or any reader of Chamisha Chomshatara would read the Brisbane Amsterdam, but it's not how the Balagada reads it. Balagada comes along after that and says, the he sha'amda lavotenu velanu. The argument of the Hishamda is that wasn't a one-time promise. That promise had many iterations. It was an always promise. It was a promise that no matter what, I will always be there for you. Where do you see that in the Brisbane Amsarim? How could you possibly read the Brisbane Amsarim that way? Again, if Uncle Bob had said this, Right, you know how sometimes like you have like right, you're Shavagrachas and someone gets up and they say a nice vart, right? And then like you have in your head what I like call a vort meter, right? And a vort meter is like this little part of your brain that tries to assess what the chances are that the argument that someone made is actually true. Okay? You know what I mean? And it's like, you know, there's like zero to ten, right? Ten is you bet your house on it. Like nine and a half is you bet your house on it, right? Eight is like, you know, you're reasonably sure that that's true. Zero is this is total nonsense, right? I mean, it's like very nice, nice inspirational fluff, but it's just not what it means, right? We all have this little thing. So, of course, you know, somebody comes up and says something, and it's like a, it's like a 1.3 on the vert meter. It's like, you know, you say, oh, that was very inspirational, very wonderful, very nice. Ayasha Koch, that was really great. But, but you don't really believe that it's true, right? So if Uncle Bob said this about the Brisbane Amsarim, your vert meter would be hovering somewhere around 1.3, right? You would say, it's all very nice and very inspirational, Bob, that, that promise, it always is there for us, right? But it's just not what it says. It wasn't what it was talking about. It's a one-time promise, that's what it says, right? But the problem is, Uncle Bob is not telling this to you. Okay? The Haggadah is telling this to you. And the Haggadah wants you to take this seriously. The Hishamda. Right? That this is actually true. That is how you read the Brisbane of Sarim. It is always there for us. From every single generation. I want to argue that the Hishamda is the cornerstone of the whole beginning of Magid. Until we get to... Arami Ovadavi. Arami Ovadavi is something else. Until then, it's all about the Hisham that's leading up to that. And what I want to show you next week is why your Vart meter should not be holding at 1.3 when you read this, but it should be a 10. Right? What I want to do is prove to you that the Baal Haggadah is right. That if you actually read Genesis carefully, you will also begin to understand the Brisbane Absarim that way. The Brisbane Absarim was actually an always promise, an always promise of love that God would always, always be there for us. And Yitzhak Mitzrayim was one particular way it happened, but it wasn't what the promise was always about. In order to see that, we have to delve really into, we'll do a kind of a speed reading of almost all of Sefer Breshit from the advent of Avram in Lechacha, in chapter 12, all the way through the end of Bereshit. So um, what we're going to be doing when we come back is a formidable task. We're going to be looking at Exodus, at, sorry, at Joshua 24, right? Joshua's valedictory speech, the whole of the speech, because I think somebody else knew this truth also about the Brit Ben that it was an always promise. It wasn't just the Baal Haggadah, it was Joshua. 
And the way you know that he knew it is if you read Exodus, if you read Joshua 24. He's saying it in Joshua 24, and he's telling you how he knows it. Joshua 24, in a way, is going to be your key to understanding Breshit in a way that helps you understand what the Brit Benantarm is really going is, is really talking about. So when we come back, we're going to be, try to reorient ourselves to look at Genesis differently, the way the Haggadah looks at Genesis, the way Joshua looks at Genesis, and try to understand what the what the significance of the Brit Benantarm is, not just for um, the times of Avram and the times of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, but really for our for our times as well. I think it'll help us understand everything we've seen in Lagoda thus far. I'll see you next week, and we will dive in and do that.